Heavenly Father, today uh, we have sung uh, some songs about uh, who you are and about your spirit. And today I ask that your spirit be with us. Um, not even asking because your spirit isn't with us or we're not sure, but that we might be aware, that we might be open to what you would teach us as, uh, as we look into your scriptures, as we meet together here in person and online. We pray that you would illuminate things to our minds and to our hearts that you would have us learn today and put into practice. And we thank you that we have that opportunity and that you are available to us. So open our eyes today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, my wife and I went to a restaurant uh, the other day. Uh, it was a barbecue restaurant. And so those of you who know me would know that that is pretty much as good as it gets. And so we went in and they made us comfortable. They seated us in our seats and asked us if we needed anything, asked us if they wanted drinks, brought us menus, eventually came and took our order. We told them exactly what we wanted. There was somebody in the back who made all of our food for us. There was somebody who had come out and set the table. There was a server who was lovely and she came out and she brought us our food and made sure if there was anything else that we wanted, that we would get it. And uh, this barbecue restaurant... I mean, they just brought out this huge, huge platter, and it was so good. I mean, it tasted good. There was, there was a lot of food, but it wasn't just that there was a lot of food. It was really good, tasty food, and so we ate, and we had a good time, and again, there was people there to serve us, which was awesome, and at the end of the meal, when we were all done, the server comes back, and she makes sure that everything was good. How was your experience? How was the meal? Did you enjoy everything? And I said, that was so good. Oh, man, that, I am so full. And what I meant when I said that I'm so full and I got up from the table was a couple of things. One, I was very satisfied. I got what I wanted. I got enough of what I wanted. It was really good experience. But I also, what I, I mean, I don't know if I consciously thought this, but part of what I was talking about was I am so full. When I walk out of here, I'm not running a marathon. I am not doing jumping jacks. I'm not headed to the gym. In fact, I'm moving pretty slow. Like it was this really, it wasn't the healthiest meal I've had all week. It was so good, but I felt a little bit bloated. I felt a little bit heavier than normal. I felt like there's certain things that normally I would do that I am not going to do tonight. It's just like, we're just going to get in the car, go home and fall asleep, right? You're a little bit tired. This is a heavy meal, but that is to be honest with you, that's what we went for, right? That was the experience. You go to a barbecue restaurant, have a big, tasty, not that healthy, but really good meal that fills you up and satisfies you in a certain way. And I want to ask you what you're doing here, what you're doing watching this online, what your expectations are around this, and what would it mean for us to leave and to be full? to be satisfied, to have the proper nutrients, to be fed, to go out of this place and to go, wow, I'm really full. In the best sense of what it means to be full, hopefully in a bit of a healthier sense than the meal that I recently ate at a barbecue joint. What I want to talk about today is what it would be like for us to be full of the Holy Spirit, to be filled by the Holy Spirit. What do you think of when you hear that? To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you think of people who are monks. 
If I was really filled by the Holy Spirit, what would that mean? Maybe I'd be sitting in the corner by myself, very quiet, contemplating, not talking to anybody. I would be removed from society, sort of isolated in this very contemplative, always praying, all that kind of stuff sort of way. That's maybe what you think of when you think of filled by the Holy Spirit. Kind of a monk-like experience. Maybe you think of miracles. If I was filled by the Holy Spirit, I'd be able to do powerful, miraculous things. If we were filled by the Holy Spirit, we could do incredible things. We read about that in the Bible, right? We read about it in the book of Acts. There are people who did things that normal people cannot do because the Holy Spirit was filling them in some sense. There were some of them, it was about boldness. They were able to stand up and say things to people. Theoretically, most of the time, public people, political figures, religious figures, people who were in power, and they were able to speak to that power in the name of Jesus because they were filled by the Holy Spirit. So maybe you would think of, maybe I'm sort of like a monk, or maybe I'm miraculous if I was filled by the Holy Spirit, or maybe you think in terms of maturity. And we read about what it would look like to be uh, so uh, gripped by the Holy Spirit that what would happen? Well, in places like Galatians chapter 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What will grow in you if you're immersed in the Holy Spirit? It would be things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And maybe you look at that list and say, wow, how powerful would my life be if in greater and greater measure those were the things that were growing in me and flowing in me? Today, I want to talk about uh, one more aspect, because when I talk about being filled by the Spirit, we could probably talk about a whole bunch of things. I want to talk about one specifically um, that comes out of this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. We've been working through the book of Ephesians, so I want to take five, uh, six verses, verses 15 to 20 of Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, love for you to follow along and talk about uh, specifically what would it mean for us collectively together to be filled by the Spirit. And we could give a number of answers. But today I want to think about uh, the one that is really brought to the forefront in this short passage, and I really don't want you to miss it. I want you to walk out of here going, man, that's, that's what I want. I want to be filled by the Spirit. I want to have that kind of experience. What would it look like for us to come together and then to walk out and go, that was a really good meal for the soul. That was, that was really good for who we are so that we go out filled by the Holy Spirit, having the nutrients that we need, being energized and fed for what we need for the life that God is calling us to. So Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll start reading in verse 15. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Now, we've been talking a lot in the book of Ephesians about unity, about people who uh, are followers of Christ or deciding to become followers of Christ, being joined together, what it looks like for us to become family and to live that way. And we've been talking, as the title of the series says, the pace of grace, that it's, it's really entering into a, a new flow, a, a completely different way of living than we're often offered, the way of grace, the way of receiving everything that we need from God and then offering that grace to other people and to have that be the way that we live our lives, the rhythm that we live our lives and our morality of how we live the, our lives. And today, even talking about what that means for uh, embracing the spirit of God and we start, um, there's going to be three comparisons that I think speak to uh, their different 
different ways that we can live a spiritual life. And they're going to give us this, not this, but this, not this, but this, not this, but this. And the comparisons hopefully help to draw out uh, what we do want, what we do want to participate in, and what we want to avoid. So we start by saying this is really important, that it's even urgent. And so we're given this, this sort of warning, look carefully, pay attention to your life. And here the writer tells us on how you walk, which is just a way of saying the decisions you make, the way that you live your life, how you walk, one step in front of another, just a metaphor, walking for living. But saying, don't just kind of blindly go through life pushed along by whatever, whoever is telling you how to live, but you should actually be very intentional about how you live. You should be very careful about that. And as we come into these comparisons, that's important for us to go, okay, this isn't just a throwaway statement. This is you get one life to live, and you should probably be thinking through what that looks like and how you want to live, the decisions that you're making. That language that comes out of the wisdom tradition in the Bible. You hear very similar language in books like Proverbs. You can read all kinds of different um, parts of Proverbs, Proverbs 4, Proverbs 10, Proverbs, there's tons of them where, you know, this idea of how you walk is so important. And he jumps on that tradition and starts by saying, be careful how you walk, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, which seems a little bit obvious, doesn't it? If you're given a choice, should I live a wise way or should I live an unwise way? And you go, well, that choice seems obvious, except that practically speaking, it isn't all that obvious. Living wisely means living skillfully. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing what to do and wisdom is actually doing it. So knowledge is, this is what's in my head. I know a good decision to make. Here would be a good decision to make for my relationships. Here would be a good decision for me to make in my finances. Here would be a a good decision for me uh, to make about my career, about work, about whatever I'm doing. That's all great. You can have all kinds of knowledge and be a very unwise person. Wisdom is about skillfully living. So it's not just about knowing what to do, but it's about figuring out how to actually live that way, to walk that way. And so number one comparison. We are to not be unwise, but to be wise. We are to live skillfully. And there's a little bit of evidence here in these couple of verses on how we do that. Making the best use of our time, which means to capitalize on opportunities. This word for time, there's a couple in the Greek language we might talk about. One of them is chronos, which just talks about um, sort of like clock time. You know, it's, uh, if you're here live, it's about 10.30. And we'll be done before 11.30 and you'll have lunch at 12 and you'll go have a nap at 1. That's my plans for today. And you watch football for the rest of the afternoon and you go for the clock. But here, the word for time is different. It's kairos. And it's about opportunities. It's about those moments, the times in life where you have a chance to grab something. Where you have this moment where, where something could be different, an opportunity. And so here, what it means to walk wisely, to live wisely, is to make the best use of the opportunities. To capitalize on the opportunities that you see in your life. When you see, and what does this mean in the context of this letter that's written to followers of Jesus. Or maybe for you, if you're, you're thinking about being a follower of Jesus, you're investing investigating what it'd be like to be a follower of Jesus, and you're saying, what would it look like to capitalize on our opportunities from a, a, maybe a Christian perspective? If we're following Jesus, it might mean to look for the opportunities where God is at work, to see that where there's something wrong, it might be an opportunity to do something that's good. Where there's poverty, 
to make a decision for generosity. Where there's oppression, to support those who are being wronged. Where you see hurt, to heal. Where you see wrongs, to forgive. We could go on and on and on to find opportunities for what God is doing in the world. And when we see them, and again, this is, this is I think, very powerful because you might go into the world and get discouraged by the fact that the world is not the way that it ought to be. And why is there so much suffering? And why are people hurting? And why do some people go without? And the wise thing to do would for, be for us to say, there's an opportunity. I can buy that up. There's an opportunity for forgiveness. There's an opportunity for faithfulness. There's an opportunity for generosity. There's an opportunity for love. There's an opportunity for hospitality. There's an opportunity to care for somebody who's in need. What would be really wise is to say, not just I have the knowledge, yeah, it would be good if somebody did something about that, but to say, if I have an opportunity, I'm going to buy that opportunity up. I'm going to capitalize on it. I'll do something. And that doesn't mean we have to fix the entire world, because we're not God. We don't have the power to do that. We can't do everything. But you might walk into your day and say, I want to be more aware of the opportunities that I have, where I might be able to do something small or something big to capitalize on a moment. That would be a wise thing to do. The unwise thing to do by comparison would be to waste those moments, to not be aware of those moments, to not look for those moments. Maybe we would talk about just living selfishly, living for yourself. But look carefully on how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of time. Capitalize on those opportunities. Verse 17, we go to the next comparison. It says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, this comparison sounds a lot like the first comparison. Don't be foolish. And you go, it sounds like don't be unwise. And it is. But we get a little bit more details on what it looks like to live wise. So now we're building off of the first comparison going to the next one. So don't be foolish. And most of us would go, yeah, I know we're not supposed to be foolish. Even though I am foolish sometimes, I'm not supposed to be. But what? Instead of that, understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, for all of the years that I've been a pastor, this is one of the questions that I hear the most, especially from young adults, people maybe starting out in their life well, how do I know what the will of God is? How do I know what God wants for my life? In fact, we sometimes drive ourselves nuts with that question. Where am I going to eat lunch today? What is the will of God and why won't he tell me? We have this idea, I think, sometimes that we think God's will, there's this very specific checklist and every little thing, there's a, a right and a wrong answer. And if I do this one, now I'm going to be out of God's will. If I, if I do, you know, you can drive yourself nuts. You can be so anxiety as a Christian person. Well, I want to know specifically what to do and what. To, and now, some of those decisions are very minor and you go, ah, not a big deal. But some of them become a big deal, right? You're deciding, what job should I have? What, should, what, what, what decision should I make in my career? And those become sort of a bigger deal thing. And you say, I really want to do God's will. I want to know what God has for me. And so uh, now this isn't just a small decision. Where should I eat lunch or, you know, where should I fill up on gas? But now we're, we're talking about uh, our career or our family. We might ask questions about uh, who should I marry? Who should I be dating? Some of these big level th- decisions that we have in our lives. And we go, I want to be in God's will. I want to do what God wants. How on earth would I know what God's will is? How do I not be foolish, make foolish decisions that I know aren't going to be good? Or maybe I don't know, um, but I don't want them to uh, manifest in my life that way. And how do I understand God's will? I think the first thing we need to realize is that, that um, I don't think God is trying to keep his will from us. I don't think there are all these secrets 
And God is kind of laughing up there going like, ah, you don't know, so keep praying. And then I'm still not going to tell you. And then you're going to go nuts trying to think what is God's will. I think God is, is graciously wants to tell us what he wants to do. But I also don't think God's a helicopter parent. I don't think he's hovering over our shoulders going, there are all these little minute little details of life. And if you get them wrong, then you're off the beaten path and you're never going to be able to come back into my will. I don't think that's how it works. When we're instructed here not to be foolish, but to understand God's will. Actually, um, that note that I've put in, God's will, is not specifically what it says. It says, understand the will of the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And the Lord specifically means Jesus. In this context, uh, many of the early Christians who were Jewish would have said, here's how you find out what God's will is. You read the law, the Torah. That was their Bible. That was their scripture. So how do I know what to do and how to live? Well, the Torah for us is the first five books of the Bible, and some of that is narrative, like in Genesis and Exodus, and some of, us, some of it, as you get into some of the stuff in Exodus and certainly Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you get a lot of actual rules and laws on how to live. Personally, communally, as a worshiping community, there's all kinds of different rules and laws. Well, what is God's will? Well, read the Torah. And as you read the Torah, it, you'll learn the kind of things that you're supposed to do and not to do. And there's probably certain things you don't need to totally sweat over, but this is going to tell you the kind of person that God wants you to be. Now, the problem with that is we all would read that and interpret it differently. How do I follow this rule and how do I follow that law? And we might try and figure out what's the key to figuring out how I put all this together and live. Because some of the laws get outdated. If you don't believe me, just read Leviticus. You're going to read entire chunks of the law and go, this is not my world and I have no idea what to do any of this. Jesus comes along and he gets in a whole bunch of discussions, arguments, debates, people trying to trap him. Because following the will of God by following the Torah was so important and some of those debates come around, well, what's the most important thing about the law? How do you bring it all together? How do you figure out how to live? And Jesus is also often kind of tricky about this, but he basically comes down. He says there's two things. is to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Go and do that. That's everything summed up. If all the ways that you follow the Torah, the law, don't lead you to those two things, then you're interpreting them wrong. And so what would we say is the will of the Lord? The Lord, speaking of Jesus, the Christ, is to love God with everything that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves and to figure out in wisdom in every situation what that looks like. How do I make my decisions? I, 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 that's what I do. Jesus said in Matthew 6, chapter 33, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the, the, the biggest collections of Jesus' teachings, most famous uh, collections of Jesus' teaching, where uh, he really teaches almost his manifesto of what it looks like to be part of God's kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom. So you say, what am I supposed to do? How do I understand what God's will is? Seek first the kingdom. What kind of job should I have? Where should I be spending my energy vocationally? Seek first the kingdom. What kind of family should I have? Who should I be dating or who should I be marrying? Is this going to seek first the kingdom? Go on and on. Ask any questions. How do we try and figure out what the will of God? Seek first the kingdom. Now we go back to the first, uh, what does it look like to be wise and not wise? Buy up the opportunities. Well, what does that mean? Seek first the kingdom, which means what? We look for where God is working and we join him there. Where is God working to, to express love, to receive his love and to express his love? This is the will of the Lord. 
Now you might say that's not helpful because I'm still trying to decide whether to take just this job or that job. What, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, what you're supposed to do that is say, what most of us do if we're honest is the, the, the things that we seek first are things like money, are things like prestige, are things like comfort, are things that feel really good in the short term. And we go, well, I'm going to take the job that pays the most money or that gives me the most opportunities or maybe one that I don't have to work that hard and still get paid well. And those become the things that are the top of our priority list. Well, how do we understand what the will of the Lord is? We seek first the kingdom. How do I participate in what God is doing? How do you understand what that is? Well, you get to know Jesus better. And so you sit down with your Bible and you read through the Gospels over and over and over until you understand more and more the heart of Jesus. And then you understand those are the opportunities that I want to capitalize on. So when Jesus talks about the least of these, often, and what it means to go and, and, and to give food to those who are hungry and, and, and to visit those who are in prison and to give a drink to those who are thirsty and on and on, you know, you go... Go look for that. That's the will of the Lord. Participate there. And you go, no, I was asking God whether I should take this job or that job. Hmm. Understand the will of the Lord. Go find where God is at work and participate there. We sang this song this morning about uh, asking God to give us faith and to trust what he says. Trust that it is very deeply satisfying and fulfilling to go where God goes and to be where God is. You say, well, I didn't, I was asking for how I could make a lot of money in my job, not where I could go and serve the poor. And you go, understand the will of the Lord. Look, seek first the kingdom of God. And so we get our cues from following Jesus. And Jesus becomes uh, how we interpret the scriptures, how we interpret the law, how we figure out what it means to live uh, in God's will. And then you say, well, that still doesn't just, you know, I just wanted a clear answer, this or that, you know, A or B, give me the options. Well, wisdom doesn't work like that. Law works like that. But here, we're not told to follow the law. We're, to we're told to seek wisdom. Wisdom says, I'm learning to figure things out when there isn't just a simple answer. I'm seeking deeper. I'm trying to discern the heart of God that is loving, not just the heart of God that says, here's two options and I'll tell you which one to follow. This is a much deeper life. This is a more relational life. Wisdom, not just knowledge. Understanding God's will. So we seek first the kingdom. We seek first serving others. We seek first forgiveness. We seek first generosity. We seek first giving of ourselves to others. This is, this is the will of God, generally speaking. You say, well, how do I work that out uh, on a practical, everyday level? Well, you do that by gaining wisdom by figuring it out, by trying things, by trying to be attentive to what God is speaking to you, and then we walk wisely. What does it mean? You take a step, and then take another step, and then reevaluate and see if you're going in the right direction. And then he says in verse 18, our third comparison, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So number three, not drunk with wine, but filled with Spirit. And this, I think, now we're building, right? So not unwise, not foolish. 
Uh, we're walking wisely, we're discerning the will of God, and now to be filled with the Spirit, we're building up. And we have this comparison which tells us quite a bit. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now the comparison here helps us to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Because I think there's probably people who are watching this or in the room say, I'd love to be filled with the Spirit. How do I feel, be filled with the Spirit? And the language is interesting because it's both active and passive. We are told to do it as a command, and actually in the, past, the, the present tense, which means as an ongoing command, you should be filled by the Spirit. There's something you need to do to participate. And yet, you can't fill yourself. You're being filled by the Spirit. You're the object of what's being filled, and it's the Spirit that is filling you. And so there's this almost tension of what do I do and what do I not do? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the comparison helps us figure out what that means. Now think first about what it means to be filled by something. We use that language in a number of different contexts. You might think of being filled with emotions. I was filled with fear. Think about what that means when we say that. Or I was filled with anger. Or I was filled with joy, filled with awe, filled with compassion. When we say that, I'm filled with a certain emotion or emotions. We're saying that these emotions have great influence on me. So I was filled with fear meant I was about to act in fear, right? Or I was filled with compassion, which meant I felt like I should, I should act out compassionately towards something that really emotionally hit me. I was filled by that. We might talk about being filled with knowledge and understanding. I have an opinion about something. Oh, he's, he's filled, you know, and if you get really proud, people might say they're really full of it, which is a nice way of saying something people might say not so nicely. If we are learning from somebody, let's say it's a public fig figure, a teacher, a professor, maybe a, 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 someone who's come to give a, a speech of some kind of thing, and you're really looking forward to it, and you wanted to hear that message so much, and you thought it was going to change your life, you might say, I went and listened, and I took it all in. Right? Their, their knowledge was filling me, taking, and it means, what does that mean? Well, it means I, I learned everything I could from that person who had knowledge or some kind of understanding that I needed. We might, for people who are proud, say they're full of themselves. Oh, they're all about themselves. That's how they live. They're full of, he's full of himself, she's full of herself. And then we come to the comparison that we actually have. What does it mean to be filled with alcohol? Well, it means to take something that's outside of you and to put it inside of you and to expect that there's going to be an influence. And that's what happens with alcohol, is the more that you drink, the more influence you give it. If you drink a little bit, and then you drink a little bit more, and you drink a little bit more, and you drink a little bit more, and then I've had too much, what does it mean? Well, now I am under the influence and so I'm not supposed to drive. Why? Because I'm influenced by alcohol and I can no longer, I'm no longer in control of my faculties the way I need to be to operate a car. We see that people do sometimes things that they would never do if they were not under the influence of alcohol. Because now this, this outer object that I've put inside of me is now I've given a certain amount of control to it. I've lost a certain amount of control or voluntarily given it up. And I'm now doing things that I normally wouldn't do. And of course, there's different degrees of that uh, if you're drinking alcohol. Some people would say, you look at somebody who's, who's maybe had too much to drink and say they're not themselves. They would never do that that way. Other people would say, I think they are themselves, but they would never do that without the alcohol. I don't know which is true, maybe both. 
Either way, it helps us to understand what we are supposed to do. He says, uh, don't get drunk with the wine, which is debauchery. So debauchery uh, talks about uh, something that typically is excessive that I wouldn't do normally. So now I'm drinking and I'm losing certain control of my faculties and I'm doing things I wouldn't normally do. It's usually associated uh, with excess, uh, sometimes with your sexual ethics, things that you wouldn't do normally, um, sometimes just with, um, you know, your behavior in general. But this is debauchery. I wouldn't normally do this but now my inhibitions have been lowered. Now I'm a little bit out of control, and so I am, I am doing this. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But in a similar way, be filled with the Spirit. So what would we say it means to be f- uh, filled with the Holy Spirit? I think we would say, in this context, it means surrendering control to an outer influence. Whether that's our emotions, our knowledge, or alcohol, These are the comparisons that we're coming through. I'm taking something outside of me. It is coming inside of me. And now, to a certain level, I am surrendering control to that substance. I'm being filled by it. And now it's affecting my life. So the command here, the imperative, this is what you're supposed to do. Don't be drunk on wine, which is, you know, you're going to lose control. But instead, in a similar way, be filled with the Spirit. Surrender yourself to the Spirit of God. Give control to God working through your life. And where the alcohol is going to lower your action, the Holy Spirit theoretically is going to empower your actions, is going to empower your life and allow you to do what you are meant to do. So how do you be filled with the Spirit? So remember, there's, there's kind of the two parts of this. One is, I am actively told to do this, my part, and then there's the part, the influence of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit's going to have on us. That's God working in our lives. So we focus on what we can do, not what we can't do. Number one, we use spiritual disciplines that help us increase our sensitivity to the Spirit. This is why why you say, well, we should be spending time quietly in prayer. This is why we should be reading our Bibles. This is why, as I talked about before, we should be learning more and more about Jesus and what he taught and what he modeled and how he lived so that we have more understanding, right? We talked about this in the first two contrasts, so that we learn what wisdom looks like. What does wisdom look like? Jesus. In fact, there's New Testament passages that make that very clear. John chapter 1 is is part of that. Uh, The word, the logos became flesh. That's wisdom language in the Bible. What What is wisdom? What does it look like to live skillfully? Look at Jesus. So we need to look more and more at Jesus. We need to learn about Jesus. We need to immerse ourselves in the teachings and the examples of Jesus. That's what wisdom looks like. And as we do that, and as we spend quiet times, hopefully we become more and more sensitive to those opportunities that we want to buy up, that we want to capitalize on. Because as I know more about Jesus, I know what Jesus was looking for, what Jesus would do, then I start to see in my life where those same opportunities are, and I start to learn how I might be able to respond. Number two, obedience to Jesus. Remember, wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge knows what to do. Wisdom actually does it. And so we start to put it into practice. We trust that what Jesus says is the best way to live. And so we follow him. We follow the way that he's taught us and showed us how to live. And then number three, as we come specifically to the verse that we just read, we surrender to the spirit. And so as we learn more about Jesus and we follow Jesus and we're in the scripture and we're spending quiet time and we start to have our sensitivity, spiritually speaking, peaked more and more, then as the spirit fills us, we open ourselves up to the Spirit, ask Him to speak to us, ask Him to empower our lives, then we surrender, just like we would to an emotion or like we would to alcohol. I'm going to allow this to 
be internalized into me so deep that it, it influences how I live. And here's the amazing thing. You go, what's that going to look like? Monks, we're all just going to be sitting in the, in the corner praying all the time. Or is it going to be miracles? Or is it going to be maturity? I hope. Surrendering to the Spirit, among other things, because I don't want to say this is the only thing. There's be a lot. But surrendering to the Spirit will lead to submitting to community. That's what this passage is going to say. Look at it. Look at it. Let's keep reading. So we finish with, don't get drunk on the wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A lot of people stop there and say, do your spiritual disciplines and, and read the Bible and pray. All very, very important things, which I 100% recommend. But look in this passage specifically what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what the implications are, where it goes. Addressing one another, speaking of, this is written to churches, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When I read that, I was like, it sounds like a musical. Yeah, hey, I'm going to see so-and-so from church, and I'm going to sing a greeting to them. And I do not like musicals. I know some of you love them, but it's just not my genre. I find it annoying. So I read this, and I thought, oh, great, now our lives are going to become a musical. Every time I see somebody from church, I've got to start singing to them in songs and hymns and blah, blah, blah. What does this mean? Do we take it literally? Does this mean every time we see each other, we're going to start singing greetings to each other? I don't think we're going to do that literally, but I think what it means is this. There's going to be a spirit of celebration because we realize that we belong together. We realize that when the spirit of God is working in me, he's working in us and he brings us together in grace. And when I realize that everything in my life is a gift and everything is grace and everything is forgiveness and everything is spirit filling me, not things that I'm earning, not things that I'm doing, not things that I have to prove, then that's going to flow to other people and I'm going to look around and I'm going to interact with other people who are following Jesus and go, these people are a gift to me. This community is a gift. Look at this. It's so different. Look, I mean, the whole world is telling us we have to prove ourselves and we have to earn stuff and we have to be successful and we have to look a certain way and we have to behave a certain way and then we come together and go, it's all a gift and I see you and you're proof to me and hopefully I am to you that God does things differently and we go, that just lights my heart on fire. I want to be together and when we're together and I know it's still a challenge for some of us, we can't always be physically together but when we realize we're brothers and sisters, we're family, we all belong, all of us belong. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've earned or haven't heard. doesn't matter if you figured out all the, the moral ways of your life yet or you're still struggling, because by the way, we're all struggling. But all of that, we come together. And when we realize that, because we come together, we go, this is what the Spirit of God is doing. And that should kind of be like a song. You ever go to a wedding and there's a, a group of friends? I hope you've had this experience. There's a group of friends and they all dance together, like they get in a big circle. And when the, when the songs come on, they have certain dances, like, because they've been doing this for years. And so, oh, this is the dance we do when the Backstreet Boys come on. And this is the dance we do when uh, whatever. Um, Backstreet, I know it's an old thing, but that's my point is it's like we've been doing this for so many years. We have a special dance, whatever. Um, those classics that come on, you get up and dance. And you know what people do when they do that? They sing to each other. Have you ever seen that? And they point at each other and they're singing the songs and they're doing the dance and they're all, that's what's being described here. And do you know how people get to a point where they can do that and they're having so much fun? They drink. <laughs> Liquid courage. 
I never do, not all of, not everybody. I hope that's not always true, but it's true some of the time, isn't it? People go hit the bar, they lower their inhibitions, they're feeling pretty good, the song comes on, we go, here's what we're being told, is the intoxicating factor here in the church is not alcohol, it's Jesus. It's the Spirit of God, Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit working in us. That is the liquid, that is the lower your inhibitions. You don't have to prove everything to everybody. Come and be part of the dance. Surrender to the Spirit. And what it's going to look like is submitting in community. You come together and you're so thankful for other people who are part of that that you just want to sing and dance with them. And then we come to the end and we submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. The way that Jesus did is you give yourself up to serve the community to other people. You realize that this, what we do together, however we do that, is not a meal at a restaurant where I come and everybody else does something for me and I leave feeling heavier than when I came in. It's where I come to get nutrients and to be energized so that I can be part of serving the body. I'm not just a spectator. I'm not just taking it in for me. I'm not just getting bloated so that I can't really do anything. I'm sitting on the couch feeling heavy. It's taking the Holy Spirit who energizes you and gives you the nutrients for everything that you need in life. And it'll be worked out together and in submission to one another, which means I consider others better than myself, as Christ did, that I consider other people's needs, that I participate in such a way where I'm caring for other people, not just uh, taking in for me. Surrendering to the Spirit will lead to submitting to community. One of our biggest obstacles, I believe, in Western Christianity in the modern world has been we have made church what we make everything else materialistic, consumeristic, and selfish. I come and I hope they play the songs that I like, and I hope the guy who stands up or the girl who stands up says the message that I want to hear and confirms what I already think, and, and, and then we go out and we live, you know, the, and I'm being harsh, and I know that's not the reality for most of us, because I know the only reason that we can do anything that we do, the only reason why we have kids up there learning about Jesus, the only reason we have musicians and, you know, we can do the tech capabilities and we have people that welcome you is because there are people who say, this is not just for me, I'm, I'm submitted to the the fact that this isn't for me, and I'm here to be fed, but also to help encourage and feed other people. That's how the Spirit's going to work, and we're going to submit to each other by saying, it's not all about me. This is not a restaurant. Surrendering to the Spirit will lead to submitting to community. And here's why this is so important, because if we can work towards it, and we're always going to be imperfect, but if we can work towards this... It just changes everything. It's so countercultural. It's just so much the opposite of, of how most of the world works. And um, the reality is, and I get this, and I'll finish with an illustration that I got from um, a pastor named John Tyson on a podcast I was listening to. Um, and he and John Mark Comer, another pastor, author, was talking about um, the reality that um, when we are being spiritually formed, like we come to church, we read our Bibles, we pray, we're trying to, to, to participate in our formation of what God is doing in our lives, we're not just starting from a blank slate. Like, we don't just start from nothing. We start from the fact that we are already being formed by so many voices and so many messages. We're being filled by so much telling us who we ought to be and who we need to be and what we ought to do. And so we're always deconstructing and then reconstructing. 
to be formed. And so part of it is we have to realize, what have I been formed to expect? What have I been formed to do? Because I'm already doing that even if I'm, I'm not conscious of it. And I need to allow God to change my mind. I can be filled with the Spirit who instructs me and shows me wisdom, what it looks like to live the way Jesus lived and to live a completely different way. That is going to be powerful. But listen, those messages, whether we realize them or not, about who we ought to be and what we have to do are so, so strong. It's why we need each other. It's why we need a strong community. Because this, what we do together to to, to participate in our spiritual formation as a community needs to be stronger than those other messages that are telling us who we need to be and what we need to do. In a minute, um, our host Kaylee is going to talk to you about life groups. And uh, I'm going to encourage you to sign up for one so that uh, you can come and sing greetings to each other more practically so that you can come and just be so thankful that we are a gift to one another to help each other so that you can be in a place where you can submit to other people, which means you can be there for them, where you can learn from them, where you can serve them, where you can care for them. And I really hope that it will go both ways, because it's not just one ways. I hope you get served. I hope you get fed. I hope you get lifted up and encouraged. One of the groups we're going to talk about is families, because we've heard from a lot of uh, parents who have young kids especially, and I'm in that boat. It's just so hard to come to a, a group uh, every week. Um, we're creating a, an environment for you that's going to be... Uh, I think easier schedule-wise, but still bring us together. So sign up for that. Listen, if you're thinking, I'm just too busy. I'm too busy to participate in something like that. I'm too busy to serve at church. I'm too busy to do that. Oh, really? Like, what are you seeking first? What are you seeking first? What's forming you to tell you that you're too busy to meet with other people to help you follow Jesus, to, to open yourself to the Holy Spirit? Are you too busy to follow Jesus? Is it too much of a hassle? Is it it too many demands on your life? I get it. I'm busy. But listen, all of us, we have the same amount of time every day. Everybody. The most important people who have the biggest jobs. And those of us who don't, we all have the same, it's about priorities. And I'm just, I'm just saying, what if, what if we just read this and said, man, to buy up the opportunities would be to live countercultural to all the things that are trying to form me and to say, I want Jesus to form me. I want to be open to surrender to the spirit, which means that I'll be committed to community. I'll submit to community. So in World War II, there's a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, famous, wrote some uh, amazing books like The Cost of Discipleship, which you should definitely read. And uh, he was uh, a scholar and a pastor. And uh, when the Third Reich was kind of blowing through and the Nazis were gaining power, uh, he became part of the resistance, a, a nonviolent resistance. And he would eventually be killed for that. And one of the things that he did is uh, he took a bunch of pastors or uh, people who thought maybe they'd be pastors, and he created this sort of under the radar, didn't look fancy, way out in the middle of nowhere, little seminary almost where he was teaching and training pastors. And this was a guy, he went from living a life where he was like, he was a scholar and his family had standing and he was, you know, middle to upper class type of thing. And he was giving it all up and he was training these pastors for how the church should be and what they should lead and what they should do. And this was a time in World War II where very many Christians were duped by the Nazis and went along with it and used their Christian faith to prop it up, if you could believe it. It happened. 
And here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer drawing people out and saying, we have to do something different. We have to do something different. And he was getting in all kinds of trouble and they were trying to kill him. Eventually they killed him. One day he's out in the middle of nowhere at this little seminary that he had created, trying to train this small group of pastors to do something different in a world that was falling apart. And he had this friend that came out to him. And the friend was there to say, listen, this is getting a little bit crazy. You're going a little wild. You know, this is your way out here. You've given up your life. Like you were at a good job and your family is great. And you know, now you're out here and they're going to hunt you down and kill you. This is too extreme. This is too crazy. Like just come back and be a pastor of a nice little church, whatever, and go with the flow. And he gets in a boat and he rows with this guy around the water. And he gets to a place where they could see where the Nazis were training soldiers. I think it was an airstrip. And he looked over and he said to his friend, as he looked at that, what they were training for. And this friend was trying to tell him, listen, you're going too extreme about the church and what this should be. And when he was talking about the spiritual formations of Christians, he said, this needs to be stronger than this. And he pointed at where the soldiers were being trained. Come on. This needs to be stronger than this out there. And, and listen, I, it's not an us versus them. I'm just saying there's these messages that are trying to form us and tell us who we ought to be and who we need to be. This needs to be stronger than this. This grace, this love, this, this forgiveness, this everything encompassing, this Jesus needs to be stronger than all of that, all of this. So that we can go into that, into this, and infuse it with grace and love and all the things of Jesus because it's what the world so desperately needs. It's what we need to be filled by the Spirit. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, would you uh, help us to surrender to you, to have the courage to do it, and as we do that, would you do what only you can do? Uh, Fill us, inspire us, empower us, change us, transform us so that this spiritual formation together is stronger than anything else that would tell us We ought to live differently for the glory of Jesus.